you will take your Bibles and join me in James chapter 5. James chapter 5, and we're going to be finishing up the gospel, sorry, not the gospel, the epistle of James uh, this morning, and uh, we're going to be working our way through verses 13 through 20, and um, I don't have a title for this sermon. I, I just thought and thought and thought and thought, nothing came to mind. And so if you just want to write down prayer, uh, that pretty well will sum it up. And uh, if you forget everything else we talk about, you'll know we talked about prayer, and so uh, we might put that on the, on the podcast uh, for, for the sermon title. But last week, we talked about verses 7 through 12, and we talked about what it means to have patience in suffering. Uh, because the folks that James was writing to were working for some wealthy landowners who were refusing to pay up. And so they had these poor uh, Christian folks that were kind of in the working class, the lower class of the day, would come and harvest their fields. And as they harvested the field, they would kind of hold their hand out at the end of the day. And the the wealthy landowners, who were uh, appears, according to the context, to be unbelievers, were refusing to pay up at the end of the day. So these struggling believers were having a hard time making ends meet. They would not receive their pay at the end of the day, so they were not able to purchase food, to put on the table for their family. And so James tells them, be patient. He says, be patient. And one of the things we learned is that the, the, the um, command to be patient means to stay put. It means to stay put, to stay the course when you're under pressure. And this morning, we're going to kind of follow right in line with that and talk about how the only way that we can obtain this kind of patience, that we can truly stay the course when suffering and so many other things come our way, is through prayer. And someone might say, well, what is it that makes prayer so powerful? You know, maybe I'm new to the Christian faith, or I'm new to this church, or, uh, you know, I hear people talk about prayer. What is it that makes prayer so powerful? I want to share these three quotes with you this morning. The first is from E.M. Bounds. It says, prayer breaks all bars, dissolves all chains, opens all prisons, and widens all straits by which God's saints have been held. Charles Spurgeon said, If a man can but pray, he can do anything. He who knows how to overcome with God in prayer has heaven and earth at his disposal. And W.S. Bowd said this, I love this quote, Prayer is weakness leaning on omnipotence. Prayer is is weakness leaning on omnipotence. In that sense, when you come to God and you pray, the only reason you pray is you are admitting you are deficient in some way. And you know and you discover from the Scripture that God is not deficient in any way, and so in our weakness we lean into God's uh, omnipotence, His all-powerfulness. And so our passage this morning is an exhortation from a praying pastor who's calling his people to pray about every aspect of their lives. Every circumstance they face, he says, you ought to carry it before the Lord in prayer. James was affectionately called Old Camel Knees. (laughs) That was his nickname, Old Camel Knees. And so uh, when someone introduced their pastor, James was a pastor of maybe a house church, you know, uh, here's our pastor, Old Camel Knees. I say, why do you call him Old Camel Knees? Uh, well, legend has it that uh, he spent so much time in prayer that the skin of his knees had become rough and calloused. And so a camel, when it goes to, to kneel down or to lay down, will kneel and it hits its knees. 
And its knees are rough and calloused. And so he developed this nickname of Old Camel Knees. And I was just thinking, you know, we nickname people all kinds of things, ludicrous things, things we wouldn't say in church, right? Uh, we develop nicknames for different reasons in our life. But what if somebody come along and observe your prayer life and they gave you a nickname because of the time you spent in prayer with the Lord? What if your nickname did not come from your ability in sports or your success in business or how many children you had or where you worked and what level you achieved? Or What if your nickname came because of your prayer life? In this passage, James gives the church four practical pointers on prayer. Our first one comes in verse 13. And it is this, if you're taking notes, prayer must cover every aspect of your life. Prayer should cover every part of life. Verse 13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So remember, this verse comes right after James's encouragement to the believers to stay put, to stay the course under the pressure that they were facing. And so they weren't receiving their pay and the injustice of it and the suffering of not making ends meet. Put yourself in their shoes. That would be enough to drive you crazy. If you're the dad and you go home at night and you know I don't have enough to put food on the table, or you're the mom and you're you know, waiting for the pay so you can go to the market and nothing comes home, that's going to drive you crazy. And you're going to want to shake your fist at those wealthy, unbelieving landowners and call them all sorts of names. But James says, don't let it drive you crazy. Let it drive you to God. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, we go to the throne of grace, how boldly to find mercy, and I love this, grace to help when? In time of need. Don't let it drive you crazy when you're suffering in any kind of way. Let it drive you to God. The word for suffering includes all kinds of suffering. I believe under the inspiration of the Spirit, James chose this word so that nothing in this room this morning... And nothing in the room where he was teaching would get left out. Here's what I mean. The word for suffering could include physical pain, mental distress, financial hardship, losing a loved one, emotional pain, disappointment from life. This word runs the gamut. And so he says, if you're praying, or if you're suffering rather, pray about it. But, but on the other hand, if you're happy and you know it, praise the Lord, right? I don't think you'd hear that song this morning. But that's what he says. He's taking this spectrum and he says, on one end, if you're suffering, any kind of suffering, pray. But if you're happy, if you're cheerful, if you're blessed, praise the Lord. Well, did, did you know that praise is a kind of prayer? We sort of segregate the two and we say, all right, what's our prayer request? All right, now what's our praises? All of it is an orientation toward God, is it not? In all kinds of life, it is all aimed at the Lord. We have that compass Nathan talked about, and it's aimed at our, our Father in prayer. And so his point is to turn your heart to the Lord. I had a boy in my kids' ministry named Ian. Ian is my constant encouragement in prayer. An 8-year-old, now, now he's about 12 or 13, but an 8-year-old taught me a vital lesson about prayer. His mother came to me one day and said this. She said, uh, I, I don't know what Ian's doing. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, he'll be in the back of the car and we'll be driving along and, you know, I'll speak to him and he won't answer. So I'll turn and look at Ian and, and, uh, and Ian will have his, his face covered like this. 
And, and I'm thinking, is he crying? Is he upset? Is he? And she said, sometimes I'll look over and he won't have his hand over his face. And he'll, you just, his mouth is just muttering. And she said, I don't know what he's doing. I said, well, have you asked him? She said, yeah. He said, he's praying. And Ian took this so seriously. Everything in his life, it was his habit. God had just established his heart in such a way that any time he faced anything, he just turned his little face to the Lord and just start talking. And just talk to the Lord about it constantly. A running conversation with God. Can we learn from children? Boy, I hope so. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, listen, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Listen, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Sometimes people will come up to a person that's been walking with the Lord and say, I just want to discover God's will for my life. Well, it tells you right here. Have a Godward orientation. Rejoice. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus to involve him in all of life. Proverbs 3. Acknowledge him in all your ways. How do you do that? In prayer. You constantly bring the Lord into your decision making. You constantly bring the Lord into your arguments with your spouse. You constantly, we're touching on one there, aren't we? You constantly bring the Lord into every part of life. You acknowledge Him. You make Him a part of your moments. But you know what we do? We treat God like a fire extinguisher. When's the last time you used a fire extinguisher? I don't know that I've ever used a fire extinguisher. But we keep them hanging around in case there's an emergency. And then we take them down and we pull the pin and we spray it and then the thing's no good no more. Right? That's how we treat God. We keep him hanging around in case we need him to put out a fire. That's not what the Bible says. All right, let me go into another realm of life. Uh, Baseball fans out here. My granny, of all people, is a huge baseball fan. And she listens to these sermons every week. She's going to get a kick out of this. All right, but we treat God like a third-string relief pitcher in the bullpen. What are you talking about? We treat God like the guy at the in, in the bullpen in baseball that sits on the end of the bench and does nothing for his team but chews sunflower seeds the whole time. And then when we exhaust all the other pitchers in the lineup and we pull the, the, the second baseman in to pitch for it, and nothing works, okay, it's your turn, come on in. Put down your sunflower seeds. We'll let you pitch for a little while. That's how we treat God. He's the third string relief pitcher. He's not our ace, truthfully, but he should be our ace. He should be our go-to, the scripture says. We must make it a disciplined, automatic response to go to the Lord when we're hurting and when we're happy. But we have to establish our hearts in Christ. Remember that from last week? Second, James says, pray for the sick, verse 14. Look at verse 14 and 15. Read it with me. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, he uses two different words for the word sick. I spent my entire week wrestling with the meanings of these two words in the Greek New Testament. What does he mean? He uses two different words, astheneo and kamno. I'm not pronouncing those exactly right, but astheneo is 18 times used to speak of physical sickness. Astheneo is used 14 times to speak of spiritual weakness in the faith. And so depending on the context, 
James, I believe, is leaving some latitude to speak either of physical sickness or spiritual weakness in the faith. Both interpretations you will find in in many, many commentaries that you consult on this passage. Paul, in Romans 14, says, Welcome the one who is weak in faith. And he uses one of these words. So however you interpret it, the point is James is saying we need to pray for those who are sick. Now here's my understanding. Obviously could be wrong, but my understanding about this is that the context is suggesting physical sickness. That he's talking about people that are so weak and bedridden that they can't get up out of their bed and out of their homes to come to worship to enjoy gathering around the throne of grace with their family uh, in worship. And so he says it is that person's responsibility to call the elders of the church to come and pray over them. Think about the prayer list of our church and so many other churches. When you look down the list of the prayer, uh, look down people on the prayer list, if you are familiar with those names, what do you find? You find people that are battling illness and battling injury and getting ready to go into surgery and recovering from surgery because part of living in a fallen world is our bodies begin to do what? Fall apart, don't they? We had an adult-only kickball game this past Sunday night. That was a big mistake for me. I'm limping around for four days after that adult-only kickball game because I've had both ACLs and my knees replaced. For four days, I'm limping through the hallways here at the church and up and down the hospital and around the house because part of living in a fallen world is our bodies begin to fall apart. Think about how much time Jesus spent with sick people. Think about it. People of all shapes and sizes and sorts and colors and backgrounds and socioeconomic levels. He spent time with them to heal them, not so that the healing would be the period at the end of the sentence, but that the healing would be the sign that points to the Savior. The healing is pointing to something greater than the physical sickness. James says the elders should come to the home, anoint the sick with oil, and pray over them in the name of the Lord. And then he says something interesting. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now, to, uh, to, to preach this text, we really need to address the issue of the oil. We really need to speak to the issue of the oil for a second. Some folks take James's mention of the oil as medicinal. Some people take it to be symbolic. So in James's day, we know that medicine wasn't nearly as advanced as it is today. So olive oil was often employed as a means, uh, as a healing agent for various kinds of sicknesses. So if you go to the Gospel of Luke, the Good Samaritan, uh, it's a parable, but Jesus is using wine and olive oil to talk about the cleansing and healing that happens. This man was laying in the ditch, he had been beat up, he had wounds, and the Samaritan comes along and he first pours wine on the, the wounds, Uh, to cleanse, and then he pours oil to heal. It's a healing agent, a salve for the skin. So it is very possible that James has in mind a medical benefit. But we also need to look at the way that, that oil was used throughout Scripture in the Old and New Testaments as a symbol of someone set apart to the Lord. So someone would come along and, and anoint them before they became king or before uh, they were struggling with an illness, and it was to show that they were set apart to the Lord. Now, my personal feeling understanding on this text is that the oil is more symbolic here, but we can leave room for either understanding. What we don't need to do is get sidetracked with the oil and the elders and all of that. James is still talking about prayer. The emphasis is on the praying. And so what we need to establish is this. Where does the healing come from? 
Scripture clearly says the power to save, heal, and restore is in the hands of one. It's in the hands of the Almighty God. The emphasis is on the praying. And so oil may assist in healing the sick. It may help with some symptoms, but the Lord is the one who heals as he sees fit. So you're looking at this section here, and the difficulty now of this passage is obvious. The elephant in the room is this question. What about those times when we prayed fervently for someone to be healed, and the Lord chose to take them from us? Did we lack the faith, or did we say the wrong words? What happened that this passage did not show up in our situation? If you follow the thought flow of the passage, James is saying this, the sick person's job is to call for the spiritual leaders to pray. The spiritual leaders of the church are to pray a prayer of faith, trusting in the Lord that he has the ability to restore if it is his will. And then it says this, God's job, God's job and his job alone is to affect the healing. So the person calls for prayer. The elders pray a prayer of faith, but God and God alone is the one who affects the healing. We must prevail in prayer. Jim Cimbala in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, says this. If we prevail in prayer, God will do what only he can do. How he does things and when he does them and in what matter are up to him. Listen to this last part closely. The name of Jesus, the power of his blood, And the prayer of faith have not lost their power over the centuries. Amen? We are to pray for the sick and leave it in the Lord's hands to do what only He can and will do. We don't know how God's ultimate healing may take place in a person's life. We may see it as physical healing is the thing that must happen, but God may see it in a different perspective. Just like when I use the analogy of the shark several weeks back, I'm, I'm standing on the horizon and I'm looking at things from down here and I cannot see but about 30 or 40 yards out in that water. But someone up on the pier can look down at a better angle and can see the danger in the water. How the Lord heals is in the hands of the Lord. We can do what we can do and we leave the result to God to trust Him to do what is good. Third, we see in verses 16 through 18 that we ought to pray with and for fellow believers. We ought to pray with and for fellow believers. So now he moves away from the elders and he's talking about every member of the church. And so we're talking about prayer being in every member ministry. So if you're part of a local fellowship, if you join this church as a member, then what you are saying is this, I'm committing to be a praying part of this fellowship. I'm committing to carrying this church forward and the mission of this church to make disciples in prayer. Verse 16, James says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and, and they're connected, pray for one another that you may be healed. It is very interesting that this is the only place in the New Testament where James says, or where the Scripture says, confess to one another. But there's a connection. Confess to one another, pray for one another, so that you may be healed. What's James saying? I think he's getting at this, that confession brings cleansing. Confession brings cleansing. I'm going to use a little bit of a a graphic uh, illustration here, so just bear with me. I'm a kids and youth pastor at heart for 10 years, so it just happens sometimes. Um, But when you're sick and your stomach's churning and you know that you're going to throw up pretty soon, 
Okay? There's a part of you that's like, I don't want to do this. I hate it. I don't like it. It's gross. But after that, whatever is in there comes out. After it's gone, at least temporarily, you feel better. There's a sense in which when you confess, there is a cleansing that comes after that. Here's what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that when we harbor sin in our hearts and we allow it into our lives, it can and sometimes does cause physical sickness. Let me give you an example from my life. Just a couple of months back, I woke up one morning and my jaw, I think it was my right side, my jaw was hurting so badly that I, I thought that, that uh, Carrie had kicked me in the jaw in the middle of the night, that maybe I got on the other end of the bed and I just, you know, caught one right in the jaw. I woke up and everything's hurting and I, just, I can't move. and You know, I'm just not feeling good. So I went throughout the day and I thought, this will get better, you know. Uh, I, I'll go get some Mexican food for lunch and that will fix things, you know. Well, that didn't work. <laughs> that didn't work. It hurt and hurt and hurt for two or three or four days. And finally, one day I realized that for me, there was a connection between harboring bitterness in my heart towards another Christian and the tension that I was feeling in my jaw. I realized what was going on. I was harboring this bitterness. I was rehearsing this person's sin that I thought that they needed to be held account for as if I don't have any in my life, right? And all throughout the night, I think I was clenching my jaw and I was just sleeping like this. I'm just gritting my teeth. And so I'm waking up and my entire jaw inside of my face is hurting. That physical sickness was produced from inside my heart. The scripture tells us that when we harbor bitterness, that we can face that kind of physical sickness. Paul said in the Corinthian church, some of you were experiencing physical illness because of sin in your lives. You're not coming to the Lord's table with a clean heart, so you've become weak. You, you become ill. He said, some of you, listen, have even died. Because you're not tending to your heart. Now, does that mean all sickness is connected to personal sin? No. But we do see places in the gospel where people's sin led to their illness. James says to come clean before the Lord. Verse 17, the prayer of a righteous person, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. R.A. Torrey was a friend of D.L. Moody's. Both men were powerful evangelists in the 1800s. Listen to what he said of Moody. He says, out of a very intimate relationship with D.L. Moody, I want to say that he was a far greater prayer than he was preacher. Time and time again, he was confronted by obstacles that seemed insurmountable, but he always knew the way to overcome all difficulties. He knew and believed in the deepest part of his soul that nothing was too hard for God. And that prayer could do anything God could do. Wouldn't you love to have someone like that praying for you? Go to Romans chapter 8. Verse 34 says that Christ is at the right hand of God, interceding for us even now. Verse 26 says the Spirit is interceding for us with groans too deep for words to even express on our behalf. Listen to me, if you want someone to pray that way for you, you know practically speaking what you need to do? Develop that kind of prayer life in your own life. So that somebody thinks about you as old camel knees and they put your contact in their phone and instead of whatever your name is, they put old camel knees. And when they call you, they hit Siri and they say, call old camel knees. Because they know beyond a shadow of a doubt, if there's someone I want praying for me, it's this individual. 
we can be warriors in prayer. He turns to an example in the Old Testament, a famous figure, a man named Elijah. Greg Laurie writes this about Elijah. Elijah was known for his special acts of courage and dramatic miracles. And when we think of him, listen to this, when we think of him, we recall his outrunning chariots. I couldn't run to first base last Sunday night. Outrunning chariots, raising the dead, resting in the wilderness while ravens airmailed his food. We read about him calling down fire from heaven and stopping the rain with his prayers. But Scripture also says he was a man like us. He had a nature like ours. It means he understood fear. He faced rejection. He knew what personal loss was like. He wondered sometimes where his next meal would come from if the birds would just quit flying that day and take a break. He faced physical fatigue and exhaustion, but he prevailed in prayer. Listen, you do not have to be some kind of superstar Christian to pray. Prayer is not for some kind of saintly, holy level of people that you feel like, I'll never be that kind of person. If you're a new Christian and you're reading this passage, you're probably thinking to yourself, I don't even know how to approach that place. Let me tell you what you do. You carve out some time. You block out distractions. You climb into your heavenly Father's lap like a child, and you talk to Him. You adore Him. You confess your sin to Him and find cleansing. You give thanks. You ask for things that you need. We have no idea what our prayers are being used by God to do, do we? In 1802, revival broke out on the campus of Yale College. It was not Yale University. Someone described the conditions on the campus like this. Listen, it was in a most ungodly state. 10% of the 125 students publicly professed to be Christians. That's 12 and a half people. I don't know how you get a half a Christian, but they found a way. The college church was almost extinct. Most of the students were skeptical, and the rowdies were plenty. Wine and liquor were kept in many rooms. Profanity, gambling, and loose living were common. Doesn't sound like the kind of place you'd want to send your college freshman, does it? I mean, can you imagine that move-in day? All right, honey, we'll, we'll see you at Labor Day. We'll see you when you come home. Steer clear of all the rowdies. But a small group of students started to pray. They got together once a week to pray for God to send awakening on the campus of Yale College. And you know what happened? A well-known senior professed faith in Christ. The whole campus heard about it. Revival began to spread rapidly, and one-third of the student body, which was now 230 people, one-third professed saving faith in Christ. Fifty-eight college students joined that church. They began to pray with And they began to pray for other believers, even in a spiritually and morally reprobate place. They did not give up on the command to pray. Here's what one student said. Listen. The whole college was shaken. The whole college was shaken. It seemed for a time as if the whole mass of the students would just press into the kingdom. It was the Lord's doing and marvelous in all eyes. Oh, what a blessed change. It was a glorious reformation. We need to pray with 
and pray for fellow Christians. The last part comes from verse 19 and 20, and it's this. Pray for straying brothers and sisters in Christ, straying believers who wander off into sin. Do you know someone? Do you know someone who has professed faith in Christ and you have watched by the pattern of their life as they have appeared to have strayed away from the truth that they profess? I think every person in this room, if I said stand if you know someone like that, I think the whole place would be full. We all know people who have walked with Christ for a time. They were a sheep in good standing, right? And then they wandered away from the fold. Not meaning that they lost their salvation because they weren't doing certain things and keeping certain rules, but they were not close to the shepherd anymore. James says if you go after them and bring them back, you cover a multitude of sins and save their soul from death. You say, where does that need to start? It needs to start with prayer. If you know someone that has wandered away from the truth, today begin praying for them if you have not already. If you are that person and you're in this room this morning, I want to say to you, with almost complete certainty, if you have Christians in your life that love you, you have been prayed for. You've been prayed for. What does that do for your heart? To know that maybe you've strayed away and there are people who have hit their knees in the quiet solitude of a dark room and called out to God and said your name. And you sit here this morning, hearing the message of the truth, hearing the word of God. You are the recipient and the beneficiary of loving brothers and sisters who are assaulting, in the best sense of the word, the throne room of grace. David Platt says, The church is one of the God-ordained means that God uses to keep us faithful. The church looking out for and caring for and loving one another to keep one another from sin. This is yet another reason, listen to me please, this is another reason we ought to be involved in the lives of others in our church. Not just pop in at 1059 and scoot out of here at 1159, but we need to be interlocked with others in faith as we journey together through this life. In ancient times, Roman shields were made so that they overlapped. They would overlap one another and they would put their shields together in battle and form an impenetrable wall. It was called a shield wall. You know what they did with the weaker fighters, the newer fighters? They put them in the middle. They put them in the middle. And they put the the best fighters on the outside, but they had the shield wall. If you're in the middle and you're looking to your left and your right and you know there's somebody that's got my back, that somebody's covering me, It psychologically strengthens you for the fight. It physically strengthens you for the fight. If you're on the fringe this morning, if if you're continuing to come, praise God. But if you're just kind of camping out on the fringe and you're not plugging in, maybe like the Lord is pressing on your heart to do, can I say this to you? You're leaving yourself open. We need the other shields of believers, the shields of faith to cover our backsides, don't we? George Mueller was a well-known evangelist and preacher in the 1800s. He was best known for caring for 10,000 plus orphans in his lifetime. 10,000 plus. 
He didn't go out and do fundraisers or anything like that. In fact, he did not even believe in speaking to donors and asking for them to give to his orphanages. He would just simply pray and he would ask God to provide the needs. And so a donor would ask and he would say, you give what you want to, God will make up the difference. Somebody asked Mueller one time, how much time do you spend in prayer? How much time do you spend in prayer? Here's what Mueller said, I live in the spirit of prayer. I pray as I walk. I pray when I lay down. I pray when I get up. And the answers are always coming. I live in a spirit of prayer and the answers are always coming. What would it be like if we lived in that spirit of prayer over the next seven days and we saw God answering prayer after prayer after prayer that we were praying? There was nothing superhuman about Elijah. There was nothing superhuman about George Mueller. They simply believed James 5.13 and they took it to the bank. If you're suffering, pray. If you're happy, praise the Lord. 